Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. Good morning. And welcome to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys. Also check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. I'd love to hear from you, so why don't you email me at SaturdaysWithJoyKeys at Hotmail.com. If you miss a show, you come in the middle, or you're just looking for a particular topic, we're on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Google, as well as here at Blog Talk Radio. So you will not miss an opportunity to catch up on any topic. You can share with friends and family all around the globe. I want to thank you guys for all your support. And this morning, wow, I am so honored to be speaking with, this is a real estate developer. I know you guys are like, what? What are you having a real estate developer on? She's not only a real estate developer. She is a MacArthur Fellow. She's a Peabody Award-winning broadcaster. She's an urban revitalization strategy consultant. She has eight honorary PhDs. Um, she's been listed as 100 Most Intriguing Entrepreneurs by Goldman Sachs. Uh, she has also been uh, Alley 100 by Business Insider, Liberty Medal for Lifetime Achievement by News Corps, and I can go on. Her TED Talk was one of six that helped launch their site. Um, she's a Bronx girl uh, through and through. Good morning, Majora Carter. Good morning. How are you? So, thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you for, for calling in. It's a really important topic, and it can be used anywhere in the globe, really, you know, um, how people can maintain their community, reclaiming their community, which is the title of the book we're talking about today. You don't have to move Mm -hmm. out of your neighborhood to live in a better one. So that can be used all over. For people who don't know the Bronx, what was it like growing up in the Bronx, and what are some of your fond memories there? (laughs) Thank you for asking. Um, So I grew up in the 70s. And, uh, and the 80s, and so it was the in the early part. It was absolutely the poster child for urban blight. I mean, it was. I remember watching the 1977 World Series, um, you know, on television, obviously, and there was a big blimp up that you know that would show the aerial shot of the stadium, and there were three huge fires burning, you know, in the in the community not too far from the stadium, and that was because the air of like, all financial disinvestment, you know, landlords were torching their building. We lost an enormous amount of the population in our communities around that time. It's so place known nationally as a place where nothing good could come from or certainly didn't stay there. And um, so I grew up feeling that and was just like, this is not where I want to be. But now, I what about have really fond memories. Yes, I was, oh, sorry. yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I did have really fond memories because, you know, the people that were left, like my parents who bought their house in the 1940s, and literally the house was practically worthless at the time. I mean, they couldn't sell it. Nobody would want it. And uh, 
happened, but there were plenty of people in our community that stayed and there was lots of love and care that was that was really just thrown and supported the children. Yeah, when you're a child and you're in the middle of something, I mean, you know good and bad, and you, like you said, you saw the mm-hmm. fires and you were embarrassed, but then there's other parts of your life that, you know, make it worthwhile, you know, maybe eating ice cream or getting water ice or the, uh, jumping mm-hmm. double dutch or playing hopscotch, all these things that, you know, are in between yep. maybe the crises or, or traumas that yep. are happening around you, you know. Um, Absolutely. And one of, the, well, one of the funny stories you have in there is about Jay. Uh, but Jay's in there for a reason. Uh, the little girl that was in your class. You want to tell the audience about yeah. Jay? <laughs> um, it's just, well, yeah, that's funny. So, um, the when, when I was going into the third grade, and uh, it was it was a really hard summer. Like the beginning of the summer, the two buildings at the beginning, you know, at either end of my block, burned down. You know, and I watched, you know, people that I know and love were there the day before and were gone the next day. You know, no, most people, no one died, but as, as far as I know, but everybody, no one could live there. So my neighbors were gone. The end of the summer, my brother was killed, you know, as a result of the gang violence in the community. And um, we walked, and so I came to school, and it was just like, yeah, I'm still a kid, but obviously trauma is real. And, um, you know, walked in. And I sat next to this young lady that I, that I called Jay, just by the first initial. And, you know, and she was one of those kids who, you know, her parents, like, would dress her. Like, she had a, a, literally a new outfit, it seemed like, every day for a month, you know, the first day of school. It was just like, <laughs> wow. It's like, what kind of fashion show is she going to put on? Whereas I, like, my family, we were really, really poor. <laughs> and um, I had, like, my one new, brand new outfit, and I was, like, working it. But anyway... But she sat down and she told me that she wasn't going to be there much longer because her parents were taking her, you know, up to New Rochelle, which is like a suburb north of of the Bronx. And, you know, because the neighborhood was getting really bad. And, you know, I was just like, go ahead. Mm -hmm." No, I was going to say we all have J's. Uh, in our lives. I remember Jay's in my school and, and my parents were not rich too. And the whole, like they always came, like their hair was nicely braided and greased and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, they were like the poster <laughs> child for like blackness, you know, it definitely could have been in like, you know, jet or ebony or something like that. I you know. know. <laughs> I have horrific uh, pictures where I was like, mom, why did you even send me to school a picture day like that? Like what in the world? <laughs> <laughs> like this brown, ugly patterned shirt you know in the picture <laughs> so, so, so i feel still you feeling change. that <laughs> yes yes I, I um i and i made sure my daughter wasn't like that so that that was my that was my um revenge if you will um but the, but the main thing about jay is that she was moving and she felt she yeah. had to move her family felt she had to move to new rochelle you also had some cousins who lived in babylon talk about the visits mm-hmm. to babylon um, well, they, that was another place, you know, when and um, if when black folks, you know, moved out of like the inner cities and in in, um, in New York, they often moved to the suburbs and in uh, Long Island, you know, or New Rochelle, or even Co-op City, which is way up in the Bronx. And um, there, and to me, you know, what that was that was the escape. And because if you grow up in a community like this, and this is what I talk about in my book, is that we, if you grow up in a community like the South Bronx you're led to believe that you need to measure success by how far you get away from it. 
And, you know, that is, you know, that's why, but when you leave that, you know, up for grabs, it becomes your, wherever you're from, becomes sort of open to certain levels of um, uh, predation, quite frankly, when, you know, so you've got predatory speculators circulating, gentrification is something that people, you know, are often, you know, raising the alarms about displacement. And, you know, what our issue is, is like, why are we always like, measuring success by how far we get away from our communities. You know, why can't we reclaim those communities so that in, involving the talent that's there to improve our own surroundings and our own economic future? You know, I um, was in – oh, sorry, you wanted to say something else? No, no, not at all. I was going to say I have some fond memories of the Bronx because I was uh, in the theater and I used to go take the sixth train up there to mm-hmm. the my train, and it was mm-hmm. the arts. Yeah, the six. Oh my God, I, I don't know how many times I took that train. Um, uh-huh. But I would go, and we rehearsed with this theater company at this place called The Point. And mm-hmm. um, I actually I live across the street. And that's where I first worked there. Yeah, that's where I you, worked. you first worked there. Mm-hmm. Just okay, to start. Yeah, so, that was my first job. That was for me uh, a happy time because I ended up going out the country with their theater troupe. Um, and, uh, so for me, Which one was people it? Were like, um, we went to Poland we, and then no. we oh, came that back. Oh, so you worked with, um, Stephen Sapp and Mildred Ruiz? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Yep. So yeah. we might've met. So you Did maybe, <laughs> I don't, I don't remember, but, uh, we could have, <laughs> but for me, you know, it was fun. Now, of course, when I would leave at night, everybody's like, okay, be careful, just go straight to the train, just like walk right down there, blah, blah, blah. And um, I guess because I had done it so much, I mean, I wasn't cocky or anything, but I was like, okay, nothing's happened so far. You know, I'm, I'm cool. And nothing ever did happen, but I would hear stories, you know, about watching my back and being careful and, oh, you're going to the Bronx, like, ooh, you know. Um, so yeah, everybody has a different, different perception. Go ahead. Well, no, I mean, it, I think everybody's got more or less the same one, you know, which is something that you know, we hear a lot of that, but, but there are perceptions that, you know, oh, my gosh, everything is, must be bad and everybody's going to be, you know, you're going to walk wherever you're going, you're going to get stabbed or shot or whatever. And not to dismiss that sometimes, you know, and I mean, my heart goes out to the folks in Chicago in particular because it is, it, it's really hard um, you know, what they're going through right now. But it's it's it, it cycles, right? It doesn't always stay that way. It wasn't always that way. It's not always going to stay that way either. But in the meantime, you know, I think about, you know, what people would say about um, our community. And, you know, one of the reasons why I thought it was important to write this book was that, you know, it's like, oh, my goodness, you know, everybody wants to leave a place like that because, you know, it's just bad. Of course, it's super dangerous, blah, blah, blah. And when I decided I was going to be a real estate developer, and, you know, one of the first things I did was ask folks, you know, why are you leaving this community? Yeah. And, you know, you what, what, what kind mm-hmm. of, what, mm-hmm, lots of surveys, lots of focus groups. And I was like, well, what are some of the, the things that you're leaving for? I mean, and why are you, and, and crime was not at any of them, none of them. Mm. It was more like there was nothing for them to do. Like there weren't really great places, you know, to hang out. <clears throat> I remember the early days of the point. Yeah, there was definitely some fun stuff, you know, to do. But there was most of the things were just sort of like, you know, we've got real, you know, community centers. We don't have like, you know, cafes and bars and restaurants and, you know, the kind of bookstores that we want to hang out in. And that's where, why we leave the neighborhood to go and experience and, those things. That's where we spend and our money. Also, you talk about 
property, you know, and uh, the idea of owning property and how can I own the property I'm in and and get equity and that idea of how do you do that? Uh, How do you own more than one property? Uh, Tell the audience about Miss Odessa. That was a really cool story um, about her house across from your parents. Sure. I mean, so the point about all all of this in, in the book, I talk about you know Ms. Uh, Ms., Ms., Ms. Odessa Strafford, and um, but at the whole at the core of it is that you know reclaiming your community is about recognizing that there's value in those marginalized communities, and that we can and should you know aspire to create a future that's economically, emotionally, and spiritually meaningful to ourselves. And one of the ways that that I talk about it is. Miss Stratford, who was a woman who lived across the street from my from my family's house, and um, you know she was you know a single woman, traveled the world, she was a really interesting woman. Um, got sick, my family took care of her. She wanted to leave the house to my family, which she never changed her will. Um, and when you know it was like people, other people lived in the in the in the house for a while as well, but really my family was taking care of her this whole time. When she finally passed. No one even executed, the the will wasn't even executed. Like nobody cared Mm -hmm. about actually getting that house. Um, Almost 20 years later, you know, I'm back in the community, you know, deciding that I'm going to be working in community development. And, um, you know, I asked my dad, so who owns this house? And he was like, nobody. (laughs) And I was like, what do you mean nobody? (laughs) And he's like, nobody came to execute. It was like, nope, nobody. And that's when I was like, oh, I'm going to try to to get it because I needed a place to stay. At that point, I was just living with my family. And I was like, I don't want to do that mm-hmm. anymore. I'm too old. And so I ended up, you know, hiring a lawyer, um, borrowed money, hired a lawyer, um, and uh, ended up, <laughs> make a long story short, it was really kind of crazy. Um, the second that we had, like, uh, filed a claim, you know, on this house, a predatory speculator obtained a fraudulent deed, you know, on the property, and then tried to evict mm. me, like right away. And what was interesting about that is that at that time, the South Bronx was becoming what was known as a hot community by real estate developers, and and that's when it was just like, oh, there's going to be a land grab, you know, by predatory speculators, and that and I actually got caught up in one of them. And fortunately, you know, it took it, it took two years, but I was able to acquire the property, um, you know, for, for, and, and it's now actually gen, obviously generating wealth for my family as opposed to the, the, the family of the predatory speculators that wanted to, you know, acquire it out from underneath us. Now, a really cool story also is Zena. Zena is kind of your foray into this activism. Can you tell us about Zena? Sure. Um, well, like, like a lot of what we call low-status communities or the communities where um, inequality is simply assumed, uh, where you'll see more environmentally burdensome facilities, you know, more, um, you know, lower health outcomes, higher education, excuse me, lower educational attainment, things like that. You know, my neighborhood was, was subject to um, the city and state looking at it and basically like plant, you know, establishing more waste facilities and power plants and burdensome facilities like that, um, just basically so that wealthier and whiter communities could afford to avoid them. And so we were literally sitting at a, at a, at a, at a, at a, at a crossroads where the city was planning on doing this. And that's when we decided that we needed to think about like, what are we actually fighting for? 
in our community, not just what we're fighting against, but what are we fighting for. And um, I kept getting these notices about um, you know, reclaiming the, the Bronx River and doing restoration on it, and I didn't even know we really had one. Um, I mean, I knew we had one because you could see it on a subway map, but it wasn't like I've ever like visited it or thought that you can get to it because there was industry that yeah. lined the, the shores. And then, you know, I got my dog, Zena, literally pulled me into what I thought was an abandoned dump. And there, but behind, like, you know, literally weeds and piles of garbage over my head was the Bronx River. And I took that as, a, as an opportunity to work on getting a, you know, a small grant that we leveraged, you know, hundreds of times over um, into what became a $3 million uh, redevelopment of what's now the, a national award-winning park uh, called Hunts Point Riverside Park. And, you know, if my dog, my crazy dog, Zena, hadn't pulled me into it, I don't think I ever would have gone down that path. But what it led me to show was that if we can, when you change what people are looking at within their community, they tend to have a, a better sense of pride, you know, within that community and start thinking about it as something that they could, that they want to be in and say in. And that's mm-hmm. really the, uh, the reason behind my book. It's to support a, um, a talent or at least looking at a talent retention strategy within the community, um, which is like because, again, we're taught to measure success by how far we get away from them. And if we continue to do that, then we're not giving ourselves opportunities to be the, 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 the agents for economic or social change within our own community. Like why are we now, you know, consistently going in another direction? Running away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, you tried to say you're doing this, you're trying, I mean, this is in the early part of the game, and people did not like what you were doing and thought you were the enemy. Um, some of the names, they called you the Pinterest when you were dealing with Fresh Direct, and then you had this phrase self-gentrification, and people took it not the way you wanted them to take it. Can you explain the, the, that term self-gentrification and, and where you got it from and, and what you were trying to do Sure. Well, the phrase was, as far as I know, started by a really amazing gentleman named uh, Dr. Ronald Carter, who was a um, pastor down and also the head of a HBCU down in Charlotte, North Carolina. And their goal, it, well, Johnson C. Smith University is actually the name of it. And what they did was they were working together with um, the, some financial institutions and some local people within the community to do development along the, uh, you know, in the, in the town right outside of the community, excuse me, right outside the college. And so they were planning to do, you know, housing and commercial development, all that good stuff. And then, but not everybody from the community was involved, of course. And some folks decided that, oh my gosh, like if, because we're so led to believe, you know, especially in, in um, our communities that, if anybody does development, it's got to be people from outside the communities. Like that's just like the default setting of our, I think the way most of us think about it, we don't do things like that, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so they were just like, somebody's coming in and gentrifying us out. And, and Dr. Carter, you know, had to tell some of them like, Whoa, wait a second. No, this is the people from your own community doing this work. Mm -hmm. It's not gentrification. If it's anything, it's, it's self gentrification because this is, development that's by y'all and for y'all. So, like, where where did that come from? And so I thought that was a really interesting way of just sort of, like, flipping the idea that, you know, why aren't we doing development? Why can't we? And why is it assumed that we don't? 
it's always like somebody else, usually a white person or white company, you know, coming in to do this work. And, um, and, uh, and then we get all upset when it really is not meant for us or mm. it continues to, to concentrate poverty and saturate the kind of things that we don't want to see in our neighborhoods. So I was just, so I thought it was really fascinating. And then, you know, some people just, because it is a trigger word, gentrification is, not the self part, but quite frankly, some of them just didn't see that and just assumed that it meant that, you know, gentrification was a good thing. And, and you know, it just, it we came came to the point where it's like I don't even use it anymore. I just it's just not. I don't even care. It's like I let my work speak for itself, which is significant, and um, that's that. But the, and actually, there were those that loved it and thought, yeah, why can't we have nice things in our neighborhood? Like, why do we need to leave in order to, to you had, experience the kind of beautiful things that we want? Now, one of the things you have this phrase in there called poverty level economic maintenance. Talk, mm-hmm. What does that mean? Um, yeah. Tell the people in, uh, in in layman's terms, I guess you know. Yeah. Well, no, it's it, it it is a layman's term. I mean, it's and everybody knows what it is when they see it. Um, you know, it refers to the, like the type of development that one finds in in low status communities. You know, it's like the health clinics, the community centers, the liquor stores, the dollar stores, you know, lots of government subsidized, you know, affordable housing, um, you know, for but just for very, very poor people and concentrated poverty. Like, but that's what you see. Um, so money is definitely being made from each and every one of those kind of entities, but it's not actually helping the people that are already in those communities. You had a lot so, of again, struggle it's, it's about resistance. Money. Yeah, it's about money. And, and one of those was the yeah. Spofford, um, Spofford uh, Juvenile Detention Center. You, you had a lot of struggle. And one of the things, not only just because of poverty, but because that you were a woman and you were black, what were some of the things that happened to you when you were trying to deal with that? Because you had a big shock near the end of like, oh, oh, that's the way you're going to go? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, you know, our, 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 in many low-status communities, um, the idea is, you know, there's two kinds of development. There's, you know, the kind of gentrification that leads to, to, to a level of displacement, and then there's poverty-level economic maintenance. We were interested in doing something that was in the middle. So we were proposing mixed-use and mixed-income housing you know, as as, as the, the play there that included home ownership, that included, you know, actually taller buildings. It was a much more dense, um, you know, development. We had included more than 200,000 square feet of um, commercial and light manufacturing and cultural space. And it was those things that made it so that we were just like, we needed to economically diversify our community. You know, that would seem like a good middle ground for us, you know, one that wasn't concentrating poverty and all of the issues associated with it, nor was it, you know, displacing every, you know, everybody, um, you know, in, in the community by just bringing in, you know, high income, you know, or rather, um, you know, high income housing. That wasn't the point. But I think our city, you know, just really did not see, you know, the, the kind of inferiority complex that's often, you know, placed upon communities like ours. Like they were just like, nobody of any means wants is going to live there. It's like it's not everybody who lives in this, in our communities. They're, they're not poor either. <laughs> so right. it was just sort of like, but we're not building, you know, housing for the family who um, 
you know, of, of, of people who were born and raised in this community who raised their kids and, you know, and sent them to college and who have decent jobs right now who might want to live near their families. But they can't because no one's building that type of housing. They call it workforce housing. And, you know, you're not rich, but you, you, have, you have a job and a career and you're making decent money. Um, so it's like, why are we building for them as well? And I think that's the city not, not having any confidence, you know, in our ability or actually the community's ability to transform itself and actually create the kind of, of development that would actually support the people that were in the, those communities. That was somehow a crazy. That was a crazy idea, and instead they chose to build um, just a low-income housing project. Yeah, with no real economic development. One of the great programs is a Jumpstart program in Philadelphia, my hometown. I was really mm-hmm. like, whoa, and I didn't even know anything about this program. So one of the things that I find is that there's a lot of good things going on in the world, but nobody knows about them sometimes. Can you talk to the audience about this Jumpstart program, what they did, what, they, what, what was their goal, and, and how you got involved with them? Sure. I mean, the, the focus of Jumpstart Germantown really is to create a whole host of um, new developers and, and started in, in Germantown in Philadelphia. And, you know, predominantly black community, um, often considered pretty poor. And um, it was started by Ken Weinstein, who is a really, you know, a, a commercial developer actually from just across the border over in, in uh, Jersey. And, um, you know, when he started doing development in, uh, in a 30-year career development in Philly and was really excited and was was, was approached by, um, you know, two young people at uh, some kind of community board meeting. And they just asked him, like, I, we want to do development in our own communities. You know, can you give us some advice? And he did. He's a really just affable guy. And um, then, he, you know, they told a couple friends and, sooner than you know <laughs> there was a bunch of people um who were going to this like you know nice white guy who was telling them the the, the keys about how to do development and mm-hmm. and and it was really amazing for them and then he did another thing which was he actually started a um a, a loan program that gave these developers their very first opportunity to borrow money to do their to do their developments so because he knew that the none of these folks would have been eligible for a loan. So he set up the conditions so that they would be. And so by, and by creating this, you know, uh, it's just a, um, gosh, like a four-week program that gives you just yeah. enough information on how to get started. Um, and then also you, once you get through it, you've got access to developing a, um, you know, to access to capital, which is the next thing that you need in order to make it happen. Well, great thing at the end of the book, you have steps that people can take, how to start the process. And that's really what people sometimes are like, okay, you did all this great stuff. Well, how can I do it? You know, and I'm just a, a lonely so-and-so or whatever, a lowly so-and-so. Can you tell us some of those steps, those process steps that people can do? Yeah, one of the things that I um, put in, in the book is a uh, it's a screen that um, I use myself for the projects that we do is called idea to reality and it's basically a, a way to sort of like pressure test your idea and to figure out like at what point where you need the help and how you need the help and 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 also even if your idea is going to fly and so some of the, the the first thing is just like thinking about you know is it 
you know, it's um, da da da. It just requires definitely some some discipline. But the first thing is is even just dis- discovering and finding out if you are ready, you know, to make the the project happen. And so, like the first thing is like you know, identify a market your market need. Um, like, is it a problem that that folks really need to be solved? You know, then you need to design your attractive solution because if it's if it's just a, a great solution to you and nobody else, then nobody cares. Um, you know, how's it going to be better than what's there? And then you have to find angel investors, and I often put the angel investor in quotes because it doesn't necessarily mean um, money. It can often mean um, you know some kind of like influencer, you know, or people who like vouch for you and so that's great and then you have to launch some kind of a beta test does not have to be perfect as a matter of fact it never will be so you then you work on end up but you need to see how people use it and then you learn and refine you know based on real world you know intelligence and then move from there Um, and then you could reiterate and expand and so you know one of the ways that you know the way that i describe it in the book is like i talk about what um you know june lankard who is a, a a member of the EAC tribe up in Alaska, you know, what they're doing, what they've been doing around, um, you know, preserving and protecting the land up there so that they can create businesses, you know, in, you know, using the actual land itself. It's also like a cultural thing that they, that they do up there too. So, Mm. you know, it's now, it's a really amazing kind of way to just, just sort of check yourself. But, you know, but ultimately the other thing that I'm excited about in this book is that there's also a discussion guide because some of the some of the themes are, are tough for people, um, you know, to yeah. to take in. I I you know, I'm asking people to think about, you know, what's it what would it be like, you know, if our if people in American low status communities actually stayed and decided, you know, to hold on to the family property or build a business there, um, you know, as opposed to immediately going to a place this another place the second that they could. And um you know, these are the kind of conversations that I hope we see happen more because, you know, if you think about it, you know, once in, in black communities when we were racially segregated legally and um, but economically diverse, you know, there were amazing things that happened in, in those communities. And I think we were there not to, you know, dismiss the kind of systemic racism that we definitely dealt with back then, but, um, you know, we're still dealing with it now. Uh, but I do think that one of the intended consequences of, of integration is that once we were able to sort of freely move, you know, to other neighborhoods and move out of those neighborhoods, um, we lost a lot, you know, and those communities are still yeah. challenged, the ones that are left behind. And so I do ask that question, like, why do we seem to measure success by how far we get away from our communities? And what would it look like? you know, if we decided not to and actually stay to reinvest emotionally and things like that um, and financially, of course. I mean, people may not be aware. People may not be aware, though, historically, there were very great, if you want to say, not civilizations, but towns, for example, like Greenwood in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, or, and, and there were many other places, but we don't learn about those. So you don't realize the, the capability of your peoples, even in right. those I would consider crazier times than now, maybe, maybe not, to thrive and be successful. But then when they were, they were torn down. What would you have right. done differently? What What is something you know now that you could tell the younger major, like, you don't go there, don't go down that street, don't talk to that person? What's something you would do differently? I would have gotten a degree in <laughs> um, in business. <laughs> okay. Period. And that's do you have any regrets? 
do you have any um, regrets other than, than that type of thing? Any other regrets of projects you might have worked on or situations you got into? I mean, I wish I'd, you know, known. I mean, look, you don't know what you don't know, <laughs> obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but, I mean, I have less regrets than I have, you know, kind of just wishes that I had, you know, done some more, like studied a little bit more or even knew what I could study. Because there was just things I just did not know. I mean, I think I, like yeah. a lot of folks, I just assumed that, um, you know, things like, you know, developing our own community, that just wasn't for somebody that, you know, that with my kind of skin tone. You know, I didn't realize that mm-hmm. actually there were people who did that, who do that, and who, and there's more of us that can. You know, and I didn't know about, you know, the history, you know, of the Greenwoods and, and, the, uh, and the Wilmingtons, you know, all like literally destroyed you know, people massacred for actually having, you know, developing the towns that serve them, you know, as black people in some of the most racially, you know, charged and, and horrifically, you know, just, you know, places, but they did and they thrived. And even that was the thing that pissed people off. That was especially, I think, the thing that pissed white people that off. That was, a, um, I think that, exactly, exactly. What do you do to take care of yourself? Because there's a lot of stress involved in all these different projects and you come upon a lot of resistance sometimes what kind of self-care things can you tell people they should do or, or could do to, to, to well, kind of rejuvenate I mean, themselves I, when they're dealing with this i mean i pray i um you know i, I meditate you know i i recognize that i was fearfully and wonderfully made by god and you know the, the little things that i go through are just not that big a deal when it gets right down to it and you know and i'm also just deeply humbled and um and bolstered up by the love I get. Yeah, I get some resistance, but mostly, you know, I get way more love than I do anything else. And it's What's because people are starting to this? see. Huh? Oh, sorry. Say sorry go ahead. I, I thought, no, no, no. no go I ahead. didn't hear I thought your you question. Had finished. I was going to say, what's I didn't next hear for you? I was saying, what was next for you now that the book has come out, and what are you planning to do next? Well, I got to sell the book, <laughs> so I'm gonna ask, tell, let you and tell your your listeners that if you do a, um, if you buy ten or more books, I will before March first. You know, I can you know you, we can schedule you know a Zoom or depending on where you are, I might be able to come in person. You know, um, you know, God willing, with this with all the COVID stuff, um, and uh, you know, actually do a book group with you, which would be wonderful. Um, you know, and you could ask me all the questions you want, and I could you know advise you on on the projects you're working on. I mean, it could be really fun, and uh, so that's so I definitely want to to push that. Um, but the next project that we're working on is uh, the restoration of a historic rail station you know, in my neighborhood that we're going to um, transform into a event hall. And the idea is that it'll be a great music venue. You know, you could rent it for weddings or quinceañeras or sweet sixteens or whatever. And um, you know, and it becomes like another really functioning, beautiful space in the community. And we're also going to be lady. Um, doing it a crowdfunding investment, you know, campaign on that. So people will, you know, from the community will be able to invest in a real estate project with the same rate of returns as a, as, as a much larger investor. Now, um, can they hire you to like do training sessions on things? Uh, people might be wanting yes, to do I, that. They might want to bring you. Sure. Definitely. I'm, I mean, I work as a consultant, so absolutely. Totally. So you can just go to my well, website, majoracartergroup.com. 
Okay, that's what I was going to say. They can go to your website. And where are you on social media? Can you tell them your um, hooks on social media? At Majora Carter. And I also have a cafe called At Boogie Down Grind. I love that. I love the Boogie Down Grind name. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what's your favorite? We're going to end on what's your favorite coffee? Um, I really love oat milk, a, a double oat milk um, cortado with a little mocha. Okay. That's my favorite drink. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Majora, for coming on today. I'm going to be giving away some copies of your book. Um, and maybe oh, people will buy the 10. I, I think the 10 is great. great. That idea is a, is a great idea. Buy 10 of her books. Yep. She could do a Zoom talk with you, maybe come talk with you, depending on the COVID, of course, and where you are in the, in the country, in the world. But, I mean, a, I mean, if they have a private plane or something and they want to fly you somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think you That'd should. That'd be but, fun. You know, say no. Um, you know, Dubai or, you know, just putting it out there. <laughs> oh, I'd go. Uh, yes, yes. Oh, thank right. you well, so you have much. A great weekend. Thank you very much. Okay, thank, thank you. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Okay, t- bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I just got off the phone with Majora Carter. She's a real estate developer, urban revitalization strategy consultant, MacArthur Fellow, Peabody Award-winning broadcaster, and she has a book I'm going to be giving away. It's called Reclaiming Your Community. You don't have to move out of your neighborhood to live in a better one. She has a great deal going, too. If you buy 10 of her books, she can do a talk with your group on Zoom, or she may be able to come and visit your community group or reading, uh, you know, book lovers, who knows. So buy 10 and see what happens. Um, But you can follow me at Joy Keys uh, on Twitter. You can check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. And if you want to try to win a copy, you can win a copy. Um, Next week, I'm going to be speaking with sociologist Elijah Anderson about his book, Black and White Space. So you tune in to that. And after that, I'm going to have a British singer, a black British singer, Jake Isaac on. And that's on the 16th. That's a special edition. It's in the middle of the week. So I hope you guys have a great weekend. Stay warm. Uh, Drink some coffee. You know, support a black business. It is Black History Month. But you guys know I have black people on all the time. So every day of the year is black history for me. Have a great weekend. The U.S. Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo GOAT, G-O-A-T Acronym stands for Greatest of All Time As in spaghetti sandwiches for dinner? They're my fave. Dad, you're the GOAT. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.